0: hi there everybody i'm sitting here in the home ground coffee shop and uh we have actually got permission to be there be here we we approached the police station um sometime during this week simply because i'm unable to do any of this kind of stuff the the videoing side of stuff um, in my home i just don't have the equipment and they've given us very kindly given us permission uh to, to to video this and so i'm here there's no cappuccino unfortunately and so something really important missing at the coffee shop but uh it's good to be here and uh coming to god's word we're continuing in our series is jesus enough and our topic for today is around the whole idea of jesus being our reconciler that idea of reconciliation that word reconciliation it's the idea of finding one another again being able to connect effectively and meaningfully and deeply again Loving openly and being freely loved in in, in turn. Getting rid of all the mess and the misunderstanding between us so that we can see each other as people that are loved by God and deserving dignity and respect and admiration. That's the idea behind reconciliation where broken relationships are healed again. reconciliation is an epic word absolutely epic word capturing i think some of the most beautiful and powerful moments of both our world's history and i think many of our lives as well some people are desperate for reconciliation if you think about the story of the prodigal son that son was desperate for reconciliation at the end of the day No mistake, he had his own demons and guilt and character issues to work through. But reconciliation was, at at the end of the day, what he longed for and what the actual story was all about. He could have prayed for forgiveness in the quietness of his own pigsty. You know, he might have made a character turn around in the quietness of that that far gone country and said, I'm never going to live like this again. But his journey journey was in some senses always going to be incomplete until reconciliation with his dad was found and experienced again. Another very powerful example of this desperation for reconciliation that I've read about is that of a a 21-year-old SS officer who at the end of the Second World War was on his deathbed in, in the hospital and he found a nurse And basically, he said to the nurse, listen, I need to speak to a Jew. He had been part of a unit a couple of weeks before that had killed 150 Jewish innocent families. And he was churning with the guilt of this experience. And he said to this nurse, I need to find a Jew to confess to. And uh, Simon Vesenthal was the guy that the, the nurse actually found. And he captures this confession, the last moments of this conversation that he had with this SS officer in this way. It's a book called Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. Fascinating book around the issues of forgiveness and on. But listen to how he he describes these last moments. Speaking of the, the SS officer, Simon Wiesenthal says, He lapsed into silence, seeking for words. He wants something from me, I thought. For I could not imagine that he had brought me here merely as an audience to this confession. But he carried on. When I was still a boy, I believed with my mind and soul in God and in the commandments of the church. Then everything was easier. If I still had that faith, I'm sure death wouldn't be so hard. I cannot die without, without coming clean. And this must be my confession. But what sort of confession is this? A letter without an answer. No doubt he was referring to my silence. But what could I say? He was a dying man, a murderer, who did not want to be a murderer, but who had been made into a murderer by murderous ideology. He was confessing his crime to a man who perhaps tomorrow must die at the hands of these same murderers. In his confession, there was true repentance even though he didn't didn't admit it in so many words, but nor was it necessary for the way he spoke. And the fact that he spoke to me was proof of his repentance. Believe me, I would be ready to suffer worse and longer pains if by that means I could bring back the dead at that place of murder. I'm left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew and that that is enough. He sat up and he placed his hands together as if in prayer. I want to die in peace. And so I need. I saw that he could not get his, the words past his lip, lips. But I was in no mood to help him and I kept silent. I know that, that what I've told you is terrible in the long nights while I've been waiting here for death, time and again I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg for forgiveness from him. Only I, I don't know where there are any Jews whether there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you for you, but without your answer I cannot die in peace and there's a there's a sincere desire of reconciliation with a Jewish person. Because of the sin that was wreaking havoc in his hearts, in his in his heart, in his last hours, at last, Simon says, "I I made up my mind, and without a word, I left the room." And that night, the twenty-one-year-old officer died. It's a terrible story, where reconciliation was desperately sought. The culmination, again, of this guy's repentance would have been a balm for his soul if he found that reconciliation. But in the end, that reconciliation, that forgiveness was denied. But these are some of the most terrible and painful stories. In my office, when a couple sits in front of me and one partner is begging for forgiveness and a chance to make things right, a chance to reconcile and the other partner, for whatever reason, for good or for bad, is absolutely close to the idea. These are the most heart-wrenching moments. Look, I'm going to change the, the, the gear of the sermon a little bit at the moment right now and ask the question, why did Jesus come to earth? I've often come across people that have fairly quick answers to this question, and many of those answers are based in verses in the Bible. But did you know that there are about thirty verses in the New Testament that say something to the effect of this is why Jesus came to earth? And many of them add a different shade or a different colour or different flavor to the answer of that question. And so in some places it says Jesus came to give life in all its abundance, John ten, verse ten. Or another place to demonstrate his righteousness, Romans three twenty six, or to do the will of the Father or to bear witness to the truth. And so the list could go on and on. the truth is, I think, his visit to us must never be honed down to one simple shade of truth, but to be celebrated as the Bible portrays it as a multifaceted blessing around some central themes. Today we're going to be exploring his role as the great reconciler. The great reconciler. I truly believe that one of the greatest longings every one of us possesses in the deepest part of our soul is that longing that we have to be found by God and to find God. And this is where we find that Jesus is the reconciler. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 to 23 is where we introduced to this idea of Jesus being the reconciler. Let me just read that passage to you right now colossians 1 verse 19 in fact it's verse two, to the end of verse 22 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him or in jesus and that's what john preached about last week and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross once you were alienated from god and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation do we really need to be reconciled to god because although there are some people that are desperate for reconciliation on a human level, many people, I think, don't necessarily feel like they need it when it comes to a relationship with God. I think there's an amazing amount of people that say, why do we need to be reconciled to God? Yeah? We know God is a loving God. Much of the world is absolutely and crystal clear about that. They're, they're willing to place their, their destiny on the fact that God is, is loving. And so surely his love simply covers over all our shortcomings and sins and so on and there's even a verse that says love covers a multitude of sins well i think there is some truth in that reasoning but i also think there needs to be some real clarity and qualifications added to it let's take this out of the realm of theoretical conversation you know kind of theology let's take it out of that realm and try and stay to make this real and this might help us in our thinking a little bit think about the guy that regularly abuses his wife okay he hammers her emotionally with his words he dominates her with his anger he powers up physically at times with his hands you know on a regular basis she will have bruises appearing this guy's attendance at church is unquestioned because he probably knows he's sick at some level to do this stuff and so he regularly gives up the hour on a sunday to balance the books a little bit next week he's back to his own sick ways tell me for this guy to connect with god do you think he needs jesus the reconciler how about the glutton Now, i'm not talking just about food here Um, i read a great little quote this last week about corona said um during the corona, the one thing that has been proven is that fast food isn't the thing that makes us fat. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not talking about simply food. Um, but somebody who readily abuses the things of this world, the toys of this world, the provisions of this world, to feed her own appetites, whether that has to do with food or clothing or luxuries, etc. There are no limits, moral or otherwise, placed on those ap- appetites. That's the nature of gluttony. Somewhere in the back of her mind, she truly believes that this world is geared up purely for her own pleasure, her own satisfaction, and anyone who stands in the way of that becomes some of the part of the enemy group. Church isn't a much of a thing in her life. It's a bit too prescriptive. You know, pushes her too often to that horrible place of considering the poor and the needy. I mean, surely they should just get a job and it's not really my problem anyway. Tell me, do you think that she needs to know Jesus the reconciler if she's ever to enter into a real relationship with God? How about the passive but respectful atheist who lives life for the now without any real sense or thought of eternal realities whispers from god go largely unheeded or ignored or explained away matters of the soul have everything to do with personal well-being and nothing to do with god's perspective on this world its people and its future does this person need to know jesus the reconciler look no mistake All of these people are completely and utterly loved by God. That isn't the question, the issue on the table. But reconciliation and effective finding of each other, surely we can agree that that is a necessary step or an experience in that person's walk with God. And most probably if we just do a bit of honest introspection in our lives as well. Reconciliation is a desperate need for all of us. In this passage, it says in verse 22, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. And what Paul does here, which happens so often in the New Testament, is that when he tries to explain our present spiritual condition, he uses the Old Testament to help us understand, which is tough for us. Because we don't live with an Old Testament understanding of our faith. That was the framework in which they lived and moved. We don't. And so it's quite hard. We need to work them to understand both the explanation and the main point. Um, And that's not always easy. But here he's referring to the Old Testament. The tabernacle and the temple. The rituals, the ceremonies. All that stuff that we've heard about. He says we're not in a condition of presentability before God. And the reason he gives is because we are unholy and blemished. That's language that was used in the temple context. Ceremonies. Remember, in in order to to enter the presence of God in the Old Testament, to enter the temple, it was a a terribly rough uh, rigmarole no mistake ceremonies and rituals were layered one on another one on the other and so that person who was wanting to connect with god would finally in a very ceremonial way a very ritualistic way be considered if they had jumped all through all of these hoops correctly would finally be described as holy and presentable and therefore they could step into the presence of god until that point was reached his approach to God, her approach to God is frustrated. You know, considered blemished and un- unholy. And obviously we sit here in this day and age and we are absolutely grateful that we don't live in that day and age. And our approach to God isn't so difficult. But what we mustn't overlook is that that, spiritual, that the spiritual truth that birthed that system is still relevant today. Simple truth. There is natural separation between us and God because of our sin. Ritual uncleanness back then gives us a picture of how effectively our sins today will cause us to lose out on a a relationship with God. There are a lot of things in the Christian faith that don't make sense to me at first. Um, In fact, it have taken a long time for for many of us to try to figure these things out. But this isn't one of those things for me this is something that on the surface of it makes perfect common sense to me you can't sin against god treat him as less than who he is as if he's nothing and then turn around and simply say well no problem whatsoever tim killer speaks about the french philosopher who's asked on his deathbed aren't you afraid of meeting god and his very brave response probably very foolish response was, no, I'm not afraid. God will forgive me. That's his job. And I don't think many people have the guts to say something so blatantly. But I think many people live as if they honestly, effectively believe that to be true. Folks, we need a reconciler. The separation between us and God because of our sin is real. If we're ever going to be in a significant relationship with God, no mistake, we need someone that will allow that relationship to be birthed again and to be found again, to be healed again. So how does that happen? How does this reconciliation between God and us actually happen? Um, What's the way of reconciliation? If you go again to the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple ritual, as I said just now, the path was really hectic that these guys had to follow. Not only did you have to wash up, you couldn't be blemished, you couldn't be bleeding, and you had to be physically clean, and you couldn't have been in the presence of a dead person or animal or anything like that. All of these things had to be in place, but you also had to bring with you a sacrifice. And we can see this in Le- Le- Leviticus chapter 16 when it talks about the Day of Atonement. Uh, there were always two goats that were present in the temple. The high priest Aaron was to lay his hand on the one goat's head. It says, lay your hand on the goat's head and confess all the sins of the people And puts the sins of the people on the goat and drive it out. And then the other goat without defect was slain for the sins. And that's the basic idea of a sacrifice. Something else takes the brunt of our sins punishment, of your sin punishment. The sacrifice represents you, probably in two ways. On the one hand, its perfection becomes your perfection But also the other way is true. Your imperfection becomes its imperfection. In other words, this is what it means to be a Christian folk. To see that Jesus Christ is that sacrifice without defect. To believe it. To place our faith and trust in that. Not just trying to make Jesus your example. If that's all he is to you, then he's not enough to you. Or allowing him to inspire to you to work harder at being a good person. If that's all he's doing for you, then he's not doing enough. Because he longs for more in his relationship with you. It means to spiritually lay your hands on him like Aaron on the goat. Like everyone else who ever did a sacrifice. You lay your hands on him and his blemishness becomes yours and your blemishes becomes his. He gets what your sins deserve. So Tim Keller points out a very interesting parallel of this in the book of Mark. It's that story of the woman with a flow of blood. And she'd been sick for many years and had a flow of blood and satch is going up to Jesus in the crowd to touch him. And when she touches him, she says to himself, herself, then I know I'll be healed, but I better do it secretively. What's all that about? She had some hemorrhage and we're not told what the exact nature of it was that had gone on for years and she couldn't get rid of it as a result because of that blood flow issue she had not been in the presence of God for years because you remember that was ritually unclean when you're ritually unclean if you touch somebody else you made them unclean even if they didn't have the problem they were unclean for several days even if they if, if you had touched a body you were unclean if you touched someone who was clean the unclean made the clean unclean if you can follow that logic so she says i'm going up to him and i'm going to get healed i have to touch the master i have to touch jesus but i could never go up front and say please let me touch you can you imagine doing that in a church service you know To touch a rabbi, to touch a holy person, when you're bleeding, when you're uh -uh. unclean—that just was not going to go down in that context. So she says, "I'll sneak up to uh, up to him in the crowd, and I'll touch him. I'm not worthy to go near him, but I'll touch him." She goes up to him, she touches him, and she's healed that is incredible for a number of reasons i mean obviously the miraculous element of that is incredible she's healed of that illness but it's it's also incredible on other uh, on other levels for remember up to that point in biblical history whenever the holy and the unholy touch someone was likely to die so think about that that that's the idea of mount sinai where god said don't touch my holy mountain if a sinner touched that holy mountain he died think of Uzzah and the ark Uzzah was the guy that was walking behind the ark it was being carried and it was just about a tipple over he reached out touched the ark with his hand to correct it and as he touched it he died because the unholy was touching the holy Um, Nader and Abihu in the book of Numbers anyone who touched the holy fire died and so she comes up and she touches Jesus the holy one and she lives and she's healed yes in this case jesus the holy one dies she did make him unclean her uncleanness went to him and that's a picture of what it means to be a christian i touch him and instead of me the unholy dying and the holy living my uncleanness goes to him the holy one is the one who dies. he doesn't make me dead I make him dead. We get his blemishlessness, so he would get our blemishes. Folks, all of our Christian faith can be summed up in that one action. A broken person, reaching out and touching Jesus and finding healing and forgiveness and wholeness and more than anything else, reconciliation with God. that touch on jesus that's it that's the core of our faith every prayer of repentance every for- bit of forgiveness that we'll ever ask for every bit of worship that we'll ever sing every path of obedience that we'll ever choose Folk, the total content of our faith, its height and width and depth is defined by that first touch on Jesus and every subsequent touch on Jesus. That moment when we extend our faith or our hand or our prayer or our question to Jesus and sense him in turn that he's extended his hand to us too that's the lifeblood of our faith in that moment we are reconciled to god i can't overestimate the importance of that moment as the lifeblood of our faith let's be clear there's no prescribed formula for what this looks like it looks so different for everyone the thief on the cross prayed a one-liner prayer that touched Jesus. The Roman soldier, he didn't even ask for salvation. He only asked for the healing of his daughter, but that changed him and his family forever. The lepers shouted from a distance, but the touch on Jesus resulted in their healing. A broken woman used tears and her hair to wash Jesus's feet. She also left whole and loved. You know, sometimes I pray. Sometimes I sing. Very, very rarely I dance or I cry before God. Sometimes I think. Sometimes I ask for something. Sometimes I sit with my confusion, knowing knowing Jesus is in the room with me. It's as simple as that. Sometimes I'm nailed by doubt or sin. And I call out to an empty room in the hope that Christ is listening. And soon I sense something coming back at me, something soothing and forgiving and loving. I've touched Jesus in those moments and it's the greatest thing in the world. Here's the thing, let me try to land the sermon now. In the series, we're asking the question, is Jesus enough? And I'd agree, and I'd argue that in some ridiculous senses, he's not enough. I mean, he's not enough if if the best rugby teams through the ages is the topic on the table. I don't know how Jesus is enough in that situation. He's not enough for me to win the America's Got Talent, you know, competition. Um, Those things aren't even on Christ's agenda. And so, in some weird senses, Jesus isn't always enough. Only in ridiculous senses. But when we reorientate ourselves, when we grow up enough to start asking the greatest questions of life, those questions that all of us need to answer, be confronted by, the kinds of questions that a pandemic like this is increasingly asking of us, what is our security, what is our hope, who are you? then we'll find that not only is jesus enough but that he is in fact the way and the truth and the life as someone said a few weeks ago in our sermon chat room on a sunday evening and why don't you join us this evening man at seven o'clock we're going to be unpacking again just some of the dynamics of the sermon if you need some of these dynamics to percolate a little bit more in your heart or in your mind or in your soul feel free to join us there'll be information on the screen to tell you how to how to join us but someone said there a couple of weeks ago when we talk need not greed then we find that jesus is enough when we're confronted by those kinds of questions i believe folk in the depth of my heart that jesus is enough he is sufficient because he brings us to an eternal father the creator and the sustainer and the And the Lord and God of this world, he holds our hands and leads us into a relationship with our Father. Jesus is enough because despite our brokenness, which is a reality that we mustn't deny, despite our brokenness and our selfishness and our sinfulness, he is able to reconcile us to the Father. Come now. I suspect... That in all honesty, that there are people out there right now that need to touch Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to go to that space where your faith exists. In your heart or in your mind or in your soul, that space where you become aware of Christ. i ask you to turn... In that moment, in that space, towards Jesus. Turn to Him with whatever it is that you need to turn to Him with. Maybe praise because of the incredible blessing that you have. It may be a a cry for help, it may be a word full of anxiety or fearfulness about the future. I'd encourage you to turn towards Jesus and touch him with your faith. And as you do that, consider these words of James chapter 4 verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. find God again. In these moments, in these days, in these circumstances, find God again and be filled with the joy of also being found by God because of Christ our reconciler. God bless as you rejoice in that truth. Have a good day.